Hey, do you like weird movies? You do? Have you heard of Vinegar Syndrome? Find them online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the leading exploitation and grindhouse preservation and distribution companies in the world. They've got a simple three-step process that I call the three R's. Recover, restore, and release. Vinegar Syndrome has an amazingly large film archive consisting of thousands of 35 and 16 millimeter negatives and prints and are actively finding films that are underappreciated, undervalued, and underseen. So many of their releases have never seen the light of day since VHS, and they're restoring them to all their glory. Some of these films do not have the right to look as good as they do, but they do. I'm looking at you, corpse grinders. Vinegar Syndrome has their own method of restoration where their goal is to recreate the theatrical experience as best as they can. With their own in-house lab, they scan, color grade, and restore each title personally. You'll never see any grain reduction and digital trickery on their discs. Vinegar Syndrome is a very exciting label, and we're proud to have them as a sponsor. They've been with us since the beginning, and we love them for it. Check out their website today and grab yourself a copy of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Body Melt, Wonder Woman, Ice Cream Man, Christmas Evil, Dolomite, or my favorite, the Wisconsin Blood Trilogy of Blood Beat, Blood Hook, and the upcoming Blood Harvest. Once again, be sure to visit them at www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Let them know your good friend Michael sent you. I don't know if I've told you, but me and my wife are closing on a house right now. That's exciting. So it's just been a lot going on with that. So I'm glad we're able to, you know, make this work. Because I thought I wanted, because there's only, I think, one episode left before your film premieres. And I don't know, I thought you could use this as publicity, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, congrats on the house. That's a, that's a big step. Thank you very much. I like your pumpkin collection in the back. That's nice. Thanks. I actually have a ton of Halloween decorations, um, as you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you can't see it, but it's pretty decked up. <laughs> I have, like, the lights and stuff. It's pretty well, sweet. Me, um, and my, me and my wife got a bunch of them, too, because um, we got married on Halloween. Oh, cool. So it just gave us an excuse to decorate with Halloween stuff. So we just went out and bought a bunch of Halloween stuff the, the year we got married. And thought, well, we're going to one day have a house so we can just use all this again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, it'll come into good use. So, yeah, I, yeah, I like to – I mean, that's the only uh, holiday I decorate for. Uh, so I usually go all out and have a bunch of stuff. And then, um, yeah, just like you know, do screenings and stuff like that for films. That's awesome. I'm hoping to do the same once I've got everything set up. So in terms of our list, yeah, I, I, I liked, I mean, both of them were good ideas, but I thought the, the second one, which was the five slow burns, was definitely a, a cooler challenge and it allowed me to think, I mean, obviously, as I'm sure you did as well, there's so many films probably that were on that list. So to narrow it down to those five, that's why I even had the bonus one, I thought was a it was a fun process just to go through and really think. And, and also it just, it's, it's a really interesting way to look at kind of the run times for all of these and mm. see exactly like how long some of these were. Cause you know, it's definitely something I always pay attention to is like how long the movie is not because I'm like, Oh, hurry up. But just a matter of like pacing. Um, so it was really fun to narrow it down. And especially I've noticed, um, uh, a lot of the films that um, are the slow birds are obviously longer, but even a couple of them on my list ran or two of them, 
were just about 80 minutes. And it's interesting that film can kind of stay condensed to, you know, below an hour and a half yet still maintain, maintain that effect of like slow burn and, and that. Yeah. Build up. And, and I, I've always liked, like the, uh, the, I guess for lack of a better term, the subgenre of a slow burn too, because um, if you look around like on the internet, there's no like official definitions of it. It's just kind of like a fan appointed terminology. And for some people, they there's some filmmakers out there who kind of take it as like a uh, a negative comment. Yeah, which like, is crazy to me. Yeah, which like uh, as much as I I love a lot of his films, like Ty West takes it as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Um. But for me, it's always been like a a, a, rede- a, a redeeming thing, and um, like one thing that was kind of interesting for me as I was compiling my list is, for what I consider to be a slow burn, is while they've the the, the slower but interesting horror films have been around for a long time, but there's just been a, a slew of them, I want to say, in the last five to ten years, <laughs> which is interesting because like, you know there's films I could have mentioned, I could have brought like Rosemary's Baby on it or films like that but i thought they were too easy yeah and that's why uh, there's like you know i tried to go for the ones that like you know for anybody that's listening that might be into that subgenre as being like oh i gotta look that one up yeah and it's just you know it's interesting and looking all these up and you know you know obviously copy and pasting some of the the log lines and stuff is just it's fascinating how upset people get with movies because of the idea of a slow burn like this took forever you know, like, yes, I've this, noticed that myself. And like, I was just like, it's, you know, it's, people are just so impatient. And one of the things that absolutely drives me crazy that I hate more than anything is because, you know, this wasn't created when writing is in a horror film when it starts off with like a tag from like the end of the film or like the third act. So basically like from like the 80 minute mark where it starts to get really crazy, they'll like take that and like put it up front. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unless it's like very, very well done, I think it's just it's lazy because essentially what you're doing is you're saying like I don't trust the audience that they can follow along with the film for the next eighty minutes or seventy minutes until it gets crazy. So I need to like front load it with some crazy stuff to to try to like keep them engaging and get their attention right off the bat, um, which is just yeah not placing much trust in your audience nor yourself. Um, and I just you just know nine times out of ten that was a group of people sitting in the test screening going, I don't know, it's pretty boring. In this show, uh, I don't know how, how often you've listened, but in this show, I've talked about movies doing that, and mm-hmm. I just I call it the uh, the Flintstone setup. The Flintstone setup? Why is Be- that? Because in the Flintstones, that's how they would set up every single episode. So, for mm-hmm. example, there's a very famous episode where Fred Flintstone had to be at both his daughter Pebble's birthday in his water buffalo lodge meeting and it starts the episode every so it starts the episode with him uh you know trying to quickly run between his his daughter's birthday and this water buffalo lodge and switching hats and everything so that way they never they never catch on and then right before he's gonna get caught it cuts back to the beginning of the episode and shows how it does. And the Flintstones begin every single episode with that. I did not know that. Like, let's, let's show them the, um, the, um, you know, right before the climax, the struggle of this episode and then how they got there. So yeah, the Flintstones did that. They would do like maybe like a 30 second little clip, 
cut to commercial, come back with the Flintstone intro, and then do the episode proper. So I, I refer to it as the Flintstone beginning. I will definitely use that because I, I never had watched really the, the Flintstones when I was younger. Um, so that's, that's interesting. You know, every episode, wow. You know, I don't mean to knock movies, all the movies that do that. I think if it can be done effectively and well, then there's definitely a reason to do it. But you just feel like nine times out of ten, it was done in the test screening. People had commented, oh, it's boring. People are going to get bored. And then the filmmaker probably just got nervous about that and so front-loaded it with some crazy stuff. And it just kind of deflates the tension. Like there's, I call it the term like uh, taking all the air out of it. So when you get to that scene, you're like, oh, I've already seen part of this scene. So you lose a little bit of that buildup and you lose a little bit of that momentum and suspense. Um, and so I think what that relates to is just talking about the slow burn and that a lot of those slow burns or they just don't do that because they're just relying on the idea of slowly building up to that moment um, or moments, so to speak. Yeah, you're not wrong. Like, um, I, I agree with that completely, honestly. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. There was a period of time where I remember slow being always synonymous with boring. <laughs> right. And there was a period of time where, like, I would refuse to refer as anything as being slow because I didn't want people to think it was boring. Mm -hmm. That was my whole thing. Interesting. But, um, but, yeah. I, I think it's just all dependent on someone's patience and how much they're willing to kind of stick with it. And, you know, also what environment they're in, you know, mm -hmm. if you're watching it in your living room, your cell phone on and a bunch of people in the room, you're not going to be as paying as much attention. Um, you know, that's why I always make sure to like, my phone off or you know put it on uh you know uh, airplane mode or just you know obviously watching it in the theater can be ideal um but you know if you have even a decent setup in your living room you can make it feel like a movie theater um which are the best environments to watch them in no exactly and i feel like us as film nerds that's always kind of the goal is to recreate the theater without always having to go out to the theater because you know some of these movies that we want to watch we don't get a whole lot of chance to see. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and that's why with the advent of like shutter and stuff like that, um, you know, I, uh, that's why I made sure to have like a nice setup in, in my living room so I can feel like I'm having that theater experience and making sure you have good sound system so it can be seen as it was intended by the filmmaker and you can see it, um, you know, in the best environment possible without the distraction of, movie theater and stuff like that um or the people in the movie theater so to yeah speak. and before i begin the episode proper like that's one thing a uh, fascinating thing i've realized with uh you know i know not everyone's got the money to pump into a decent system but how many times i've met you know not only just filmmakers that i know but then just fellow people that i would consider cinephiles who are you know don't even have a sound bar of some type or just watching yeah. tv speakers and you know, like I'm I'm a nut for all of that, so I try to you know I've I've got I try to have as as nice of a true system as I can, yeah. uh, have my television calibrated, all the not all that stuff, and sure. it's like I I feel like with um you can still love and appreciate movies of all without all that stuff, but it just takes your love for it to another level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and definitely turning off the true motion. Mm. That's the thing. I, I, I used to be, uh, I was this guy for a while when I'd go to a friend's, any friend that <laughs> I was going to be watching movies at, at a somewhat regular pace, when they'd leave the room, I'd start fussing with their settings. Yeah. I mean, one, I mean, to see if they'd notice, and two, just to make it more appealing to me. I had a friend growing up, 
uh, whose TV, the brightness setting was so high that things that were supposed to be black were like a, a, an off gray. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I cannot watch this. <laughs> so when he'd leave the room, I'd t- take it down a couple notches to see if he'd notice. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, the true motion is kind of like the death of, you know, the death to cinema. Um, I mean, and strangely enough, a lot of people just don't even notice it. Like when you, when it's like, God, you got to turn off that true motion. They're like, what are you talking about? And you're like, oh my God, it's. Where do I begin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> So that's definitely something that can ruin a good, um, you know, film yeah, you, you don't want your, you know, you don't want to watch something like The Witch and have it to feel like an Abbott and Costello routine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the other thing I noticed is it's, it's really interesting how um, you're talking about, like, calibrating your TV, especially, you know, with, you know, all the 4K TVs and, you know, how amazing they can make things look is that, like, it's interesting how some movies, like, I'll watch that were shot on film that don't even look like they were shot on film because the TV uses so many different, like there's like one called MPEG filter yeah. that basically cleans it all up. And so that's one thing I make sure I like to turn off like on the TV or they'll, they'll have like a digital clean setting. Yeah. I where, turn everything off. Yeah. And so it's really interesting like, cause you can, as soon as you turn that off, you can just see the grain pop out and then you can see, and you're like, okay, now it feels like, its intended way and it, it can also be difficult too because a lot of it comes down to what the studio did to it like i yeah. just recently bought uh as an older version of predator on blu-ray and i couldn't want it was so hard to watch that movie because sony had got so much backlash with a previous version of it on dvd because it had so much grain because it was a low budget film shot in the woods right. um that people complained and they smoothed it out so much that everyone looks like they're made of wax really interesting and it was like disgusting to watch yeah it, it is really you know uh interesting to note that it, it all it does all depend on the company like i think criterion does an unbelievable job at and making the movies look like they were intended to be seen but also like they're just preserved so well um <laughs> yeah it's pretty um they do a pretty incredible job, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, a lot of these companies like uh, Scream Factory, they do a really good job um, with their releases. And then I know you um, you get a lot of sponsorship for the podcast, and you get a lot of Blu-rays and stuff, don't you? Uh, yeah, I get, uh, uh, I've got both Mill Creek as a sponsor, but the last couple of years they, they, they've really made strives to put out some really interesting stuff on Blu-ray. Um, and they've really upped that and they've been putting out some really obscure horror titles and whatnot. But then my big sponsor who has been with me since almost day one is a company called Vinegar Syndrome. Yeah. And the thing I like about there is unlike say Criterion or, or Shout Factory, Scream Factory, they don't really clean their stuff up a lot. They do it, you know, if it's if it's unwatchable. But they try. They 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 affectionately refer to a lot of their stuff as their grindhouse prints because mm-hmm. they want it to feel like you would have seen it in the theater. So if it is a little beat up, if it's watchable, they try to keep it true to that aesthetic. Yeah. So much so that they don't even break their stuff up by scenes on the disc. They break it up by reels. Cool. That's really neat. Which is a, ni- a nice little feature, and but I'm actually gonna read the intro I wrote for the show so that way we can get onto the episode proper. Um, though you know, I think this has all been good stuff. <laughs> I'm not even <laughs> complaining. 
Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am your host, Michael Byers, and with me today is a very special guest that I've been looking forward to having on for some time. Our special guest today is Wisconsin-based filmmaker Drew Britton. Am I saying that correct, Drew? I've never actually said your name out loud. (laughs) Or at least the last name. Yeah. So Britton is correct? Yeah, you couldn't have done it better. All right. Uh, Drew is a filmmaker I've known for ages and was promoting his film When the King Tilts at the Milwaukee Film Festival the same year I was there showing my short film, Love You Still. Drew and I hit it off pretty early on, but we forged a pretty unique friendship when we found out we both have a love for horror films. Now Drew is promoting his new film, Back at the Staircase, which is the closing night film for for this year's Milwaukee Film Festival, and I'm stoked to have him on the show. So, I'm trying to remember exactly how we met. Um, I think it was, it was definitely at the festival that year that I had uh, my first feature and you were sh- um, showing Love You Still. And I think it actually may have been outside of the screening of Billy Club. And because we were talking to Nick and Drew and I think we had just started because we we're all talking about horror in general. And then I think we just got on the topic of just horror Um and started talking about movies and movies that I think were probably out at that time as well as ones that we had loved. And so, yeah, just forged a friendship from that and kept talking about, you know, going back and forth through social media and stuff like that and talk about whatever was coming out or whatever the new trend in horror was. And so, yeah, I've always enjoyed our conversations and uh, where they've led to and kind of your viewpoint on all that stuff. And, you know, I definitely know your, um, uh, a hardcore fan of the genre and stuff like that and i always admire your your definitely your attire and your t-shirts when you and <laughs> i do appreciate that and it's also it's it's for me it's unique because i've met a lot of people in my time being a tristan movie who like horror but there's been very few that i feel like i can hold a conversation with you know because a lot of them i meet you know like oh they really love freddy krueger i was like cool i do too but then when we start talking <laughs> about something outside of that topic they're yeah. like, um, they they don't have much to add. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Everyone's tastes range. But when you can find someone who's just interested in the deep cuts and you yeah. know, the weird and the slower things, that's that's always exciting when you can find someone who's very simpatico with the tastes that you have. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like the surface level horror, which is just like, you know, the movies, like, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, so you know, the Halloweens. But then like once you meet like the fanatics, it's like, okay. Halloween one and two are in this universe. Halloween three is in its own universe, and then they can start detailing like, you know, the timelines of each and and what they mean. Because, you know, I, you know, it's, I sympathize for anybody who's going to go into this new Halloween movie. They're like, because it's like, you, if you read, people are so confused. They're like, wait, is this like? I thought she died. Like, but yeah. Same time, like she was in a bunch of other of them. And like, it's, it's funny too. Like at work, so um, you know, my day job, I work at Best Buy. And I've been intentionally because I've I, the last couple of years I for the most part try not to watch trailers, like mm-hmm. if, if they come to me organically, like I'm at a movie theater, cool, I'll watch that. But like, say if a new Star Wars or Hall- or for this example, Halloween comes out, I don't like chase down every trailer and piece of information I can find. Like I wanted to see the first trailer 
to get an idea of like what they're going with it. And then I've not pursued anything else. And I've just been intentionally keeping myself dark. But yet at work, almost every like I I just got a call from one of one of my managers the other day and it's like, Oh Michael, could you come back to the back room? We need to talk for a moment. I was like, Oh shit, I'm in trouble. I did something wrong. And he the, my manager spins around his chair and goes, Tell me about this new Halloween. I'm like, this is what's important. Like I like and I'm the authority and I've been not looking into anything. And I was like, Oh god, there's gonna be so many confused people for this yeah. movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely the I mean, you have to stay away from the comments section more than anything. Those are what will kill you. You know, people that may have seen it at Toronto um, or just have read. And, you know, that's always baffling to me. It's like, God, why would you want to ruin it for yourself? Um, yeah, I did the same thing. I watched that first trailer that came out. I think it was in July. And then I was like, I have to stay away. Because then you see through, like, Bloody Disgusting that, the, you know, new trailers are coming out weekly. And it's just like, ugh. Like, I really, really want to, but I have to hold off and just wait and see it all at My, once. What oh, continue. I just, the more trailers you see, the more you can start piecing it together. Exactly. The trust for me comes from, uh, there's a there's a horror podcast I listen to called Shockwaves. I don't know if it's one that you're familiar with. Yeah. But one of the hosts, his name is Ryan Turek. He used to be a writer for Bloody Disgusting. Uh, he is now a producer for Blumhouse. And he's the producer on this film. And mm -hmm. I've, so I've been listening to the, the, him on this show for probably like close to five years. So I know his tastes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I can trust in him because I know he what he likes and his tastes. I trust the fact that Jamie Lee Curtis came back because after Halloween H2O, she said she wouldn't do another cash grab Halloween movie. So like to an extent, I trust that she wouldn't come back <laughs> just for the money. Mm -hmm. uh, and John Carpenter is such a crotchety old man. The yeah. fact that he's being positive about anything, when he is shown in the past, he does not need to be. He mm -hmm. has been like promoting things that he has talked poorly about. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think there's enough money out there to convince John Carpenter to lie. So the yeah. fact that they're all being pretty positive about it, and strangely, Danny, Danny McBride writing it is is one of the things that intrigues me. I know it's a turnoff point for a lot of people, but maybe it's because how much I love Eastbound and Down, but I don't know, I'm willing to... I'm, I'm. I believe if you can tell a joke, you can tell do horror because they're set up in very similar ways. Yeah, that's a lot of what the articles have been kind of noting um, for anybody that was giving them guff about writing it. It's just if you can craft uh, a joke, then you know it's very similar to horror, and they evoke a lot of the same emotions of release as well as um, you know being cathartic. And so I'm very, very interested to see, and I definitely have high hopes. Um, and I'm really excited, so I will be there with bells on. Me too. And plus, you know, no one thought that um, that uh, Jordan Peele would be able to make a horror film, right. but he yeah. fucking won an Oscar for best writing. Yeah, for absolutely. a horror film. So, so. it goes to show. I you know avoid all expectations and uh, exactly. So in this episode, uh, I came to you with an idea that I like the idea of us. Uh, I kind of stole this this the way of doing these episodes from a, another podcast I like where, uh, called the Pure Cinema Podcast, where they don't necessarily choose five films that they love. It's just five that they want to talk about. And I okay. did this prompt one time before with a friend of mine. We did summer movies. And I told him, anything that invokes the feeling of summer from you works. So, you know, I, I, I kind of just gave you the basic prompt of five slow burn horror films and however you want to internalize that. Yeah. Because, um... Originally, I wanted to tie it somehow to your film, um, Back at the Staircase. And I remember originally asking you about themes, and you, that was a bigger question, bigger question than you know I was, <laughs> I was expecting. But I thought, well, based on my tastes and based on what I believe Drew's tastes are, yeah. 
I have a feeling he's probably into slow burn horror films. And uh, so that was what we came up with is we, we both come to the table with five and just and discuss them. But I figured we should break down a little bit about what we feel the definition is of a slow burn horror film. Yeah, I mean, why don't you, why don't you go for it? For me, a slow burn horror film... And I'm, we t- I mentioned this a little bit in our preamble that for the longest time, slow was considered bad. Mm-hmm. But for me, slow can still be compelling. My, my, my definition of a slow burn horror film is a film that takes its time. It's, you know, it will slowly give you um, bits and pieces of the ultimate horror that you're looking for. But the payoff comes to those who wait. Yeah. Um, and they're usually really dread inducing in my experience and, uh, do a great job of building tension and not using a lot of, of cheap gimmicky scares. They'll usually, they'll maybe throw some grotesque things in here and there, but it's realistically good things come to those who wait. Yeah. 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 That's, I, I think that's a perfect way to sum it up. And I think a lot of times with the slow burn and the reason I love them so much is that it gives you a time to get to know who these people are, um, Mm -hmm. whether that be before you kill them off or before you find them in such tumultuous situations that you don't have the opportunity to get to know them because, you know, they're either fighting for their lives or they're dealing with a very disastrous situation. So it gives you that time to see how they interact with other people, kind of how they interact in their day to day or kind of how they um, what you know problems they might be dealing with their own life, um, and I think that's that's always the most important thing to me is the character um, and the characters and and how they interact with one another, and not necessarily if they're likable. That's always been a kind of a thing for me. It's like that doesn't really matter to me, but just as long as they're you know well developed and and well rounded and and we can see that you know whatever bearing they have on the film is significant to the audience member because they feel like a real person and they feel yeah. like. There's someone either we might know or there's someone um, that we can see in ourselves. Uh, and that, that's always what's most important to me um, when when watching these slow burn uh, types of films, as well as kind of like what you're saying is uh, good things comes to, you know, good things come to those who wait. And, um, you know, I, as, as slow as it might be, it's, it's never something where I'm like, okay, it's been slow, it better pay off at the end, but more so, you know, you do have as you're going along and it's, it's kind of building and building, you start to have these expectations of like, just for what you hope for, just because it's in line with your taste. And, and that's why I picked out one of these movies specifically, and I won't name it until we get to it. Um, but you're just kind of hoping for certain things. And then when it can pay off on those very certain things that you had been hoping for, that's when I feel like you really fall off the movie. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't go that way. And sometimes you're like, oh, I really hope, you know, they're building towards this. And then it completely diverts in a different direction. You're like, oh, that's not my thing. But, you know, they, they this was the movie they wanted to make. Exactly. And, like, I, I guess if I had to say anything, there's two types of slow. There's deliberate, which is what I feel like a slow burn horror film is. It's, it's a deliberate pacing to mm-hmm. get to a, an ultimate goal. And then there's just, you know, boring films and i think we've all sat sat through a film that we've checked our watch numerous times and like is this film still happening yeah and i don't that pacing i like to imagine wasn't deliberate they had some you know so there's i you know deliberate and they're slow and i i feel like every film that we've chosen at least um some people would agree that are all deliberately paced right so, yeah and, and i think a movie that you know you're saying though um 
you know, checking your watch and it's slow unintentionally, you know, that can even be a film where there's, you know, stuff happening every five minutes and it might just get repetitive and boring based off the fact that like by minute 30, we feel like we've seen everything already. Yeah. Like for example, for me, it's a film I don't really love, but it, there's a lot happening all the time. Is Jason X? I think it's a really slow film, considering things are happening every. It's it's falling the every five minutes something needs to happen, but the entire time I'm like, God, is this movie still happening? <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that one. I was never truthfully, I was never a big Friday the Thirteenth fan. Um, it was never one of my go to franchises. Um, you know, and a lot of these, you know, franchises, uh, you know, we hold for nostalgic value and stuff like that. And, you know, I'll easily watch all the Halloween movies and, you know, the Evil Dead movies. Um, but yeah, Friday the 13th was just never, that was never my franchise. And uh, I know you're a big fan. Um, and, you know, that's another one of those. Uh, I would say at least, um, I think for your tastes, I feel like there's, you'd get something out of possibly the first four of the films. I've seen the first one, but I, I never like followed the franchise along. Like, and, and actually, in, in its own weird way, the first film is kind of a has a has its own weird, deliberate, slower pacing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think you, I think you'd at least like the first four. At least one of one, like picking, like I think you might at least like one of the first four. Mm-hmm. Four think I'd be being like their apex and they should have just stopped making them after that even though i've liked some of the entries that came after that it's like that is such yeah. a high point that i, I would have just stopped but you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh how uh, do you want to do you want to uh go first or should i go first uh why don't you go first do you want to just run through your five and explain what they are to you and... i figured we would just we'd go one on one like i'd, I'd okay. pick one film off my list and you'd pick one and we'd just go back and forth Perfect. Yeah. Why don't you start? So the first film on my list, and originally my list was actually like 10 or 12, mm-hmm. but I had to really pare it down. And uh, the first film on my list is uh, The House of the Devil. Hello? Samantha. Yes? You just left me a message about the babysitting position. Oh, yeah, I did. How did you get this number? Please excuse the urgency, but if you're still interested, I I would like to meet you. Sure, that'd be fine. Well, I'm afraid I'm not too familiar with the layout over there. Perhaps you could meet me in front of the student affairs office. That's where I dropped off my advertisements. Okay, I know where that is. Wonderful. I'll see you there. Right now? Hello? Made in 2009 by Ty West. The okay. reason this made my list, because his, his follow-up film, The Innkeepers, almost made the list as well. But the reason I picked The House of the Devil, because it was one of the first times I remember seeing a film that had this crazy of a deliberate pace. Where like the first hour of the film nothing's really happening but at the same time everything is happening because it's it's really intentionally building up this character and the and the house around her um and like i was enamored with it uh the film quick little uh description of it uh that i just stole off imdb 
1983, financially struggling college student Samantha Hughes takes a strange babysitting job that coincides with a full lunar eclipse. She slowly realizes her clients harbor a terrifying secret, putting her life in mortal danger. And that small little blurb <laughs> is essentially the film in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. It's this babysitter's just night essentially i think it's like halloween night or pretty close to and her just exploring this house and just things start getting weird i got i'm trying to think of the best way to describe it without giving away the ending yeah yeah but um i just remember being blown away and like you know there's just little small sequences of her like dancing through the house or ordering pizza and i was just hooked on every word mm-hmm. i couldn't get enough of it yeah, it's 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 a special movie for sure, and you know it's. I think it's a very well done period piece as well. Mm-hmm. One of those, if you didn't know any of the actors or know anything about it going in, I think you would definitely be fooled uh, um, for quite some time considering the detail it's put into. Like even I love when they're in the pizza parlor. Yeah, Pepsi cups. I think that's so cool. Um, and obviously Greta Gerwig gives it away. Uh, but if you had not known anything, I think one would definitely be tricked into believing that it was a film out of the eighties. And and it's 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 a film that's it's it's slow but not boring, but yeah. that also is having fun. It's mm-hmm. a very serious film, but you can tell that Ty West is having fun with form and just he doesn't take himself too seriously. The fact that you know the opening credits just are so over the top and with with this with this uh, fun little eighties tune, yeah. And that music plays such a big part, yeah. even though there's only like two songs in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just little things that he does, like he brings back these very deliberate uh, filmmaking techniques, like these. The um, I don't know if I mean you've ever talked about this, but I've talked about it before. How I'm a sucker for a zoom lens because mm-hmm. it's very indicative of of the seventies. Yeah. Especially like say snap zooms and a lot of like cheesy lower budget films, and like I think like the opening shot of this movie is a a slow zoom from between like three rooms, and like I've had discussions with cinematographers I worked with in the past, and I was like, oh, let's let's throw a zoom lens on this and and do this through zoom. He's like, why? We have a dolly track. It's like because I want the look of a zoom, and yeah. it would go back and forth with an argument, and you know it's shit that you would see in like old films and yeah. that you don't see much anymore even just having the title come up the house of the devil and that amazing yellow font with like the studio name and the year in roman numerals like that's all just stupid like inside baseball yeah it's all yeah. like nerdy inside baseball movie nerd shit that i love yeah it's definitely you can tell it's made by someone who loves not only the genre but loves a very specific era or subgenre of of horror you know dealing with uh you know the girl in distress she doesn't know what she's getting herself into like we're following one we know something bad's gonna happen because um you know it's a horror film but it's it's not necessarily about getting there it's it, i mean it's not necessarily about you know where we end up but like getting there and like the motion she's gonna go through the people she's gonna run into um and it does have one of the most shocking spoiler death scenes probably in the past five years that I've seen where I jumped out of my seat when, um, when she, her character is smoking or, um, is having a cigarette and the guy comes up to the window and he just pulls the gun out and then like shoots her. Yeah. And yeah, that I jumped so high the first day because it comes out of nowhere and it's not necessarily even a jump scare. It just happens like that because you're not expecting it. 
Yeah, especially because, like, even, be, like, because at this time, Greta Gerwig was an unknown for the most part. She, her, her and Ty West were friends, and that's why she made her way into the film. Um, and she is so likable in this movie that you, that you just assume nothing's going to happen to her. Right. Uh, and then the stranger that ends up killing her uh, is an actor that I adore named A.J. Bowen. This is the movie that actually, this and The Signal are the reason, like, I have had a man crush on him for ages. Right. Uh, and I almost got to work with him once upon a time, but I didn't do the film because of personal reasons. But like I almost did just because I wanted to work with AJ Bowen so badly. So, no, this film was a was a big uh, influence on me. And I I just remember after I saw The House of the Devil. So like this came out in two thousand nine. So I think I had just started film school or was just about to go to film school. And I was like originally I was like I want to make movies like House of the Devil. Mm-hmm. that was my goal yeah and i don't think i've made anything like house of the devil but that was like my influence <laughs> you still have plenty of time mainly just because like i don't like i feel like if i would try to write, sit down and write a movie like house of the devil i would accidentally just rewrite house of the devil because i love it so much yeah i mean yeah it's definitely uh you know that's one thing i talk to people a lot about it's like i don't think people should be shameful of like celebrating their influences but i would say like what are you going to do to employ your own voice and showcase that it's actually yours and not just uh, a replicate of, you know, whatever movie you may have been inspired by, you know, but like, what are you going to do? Like, what is going to be your spin on it? Yeah. I remember I was criticized for my, my, my first film uh, from the darkness theater that I wore my influences too heavy on my sleeve. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I can see where you're coming from with that, but could you actually tell me every single little thing I put into this film that I stole from somewhere else? Because I don't feel like you could. Yeah. Because I augmented enough of it so much. And it's like, I think they're commenting, it's like how much I love the movie Halloween. They're like, yeah. oh, it's very influenced by Halloween. It's like, that is not the movie I actually was pulling from. But, you know. It's not like Halloween. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, it's I, I describe it as the abominable Dr. Fives meets Maniac. Mm-hmm. There you go. So what's number one on your list? So I picked, uh, I went pretty hardcore for the first one. I picked Audition, which was done by Takashi Miike. It's from Japan. Um, you know, it's hitting close to two hours. And it's essentially about this widower um, who is convinced by his friend to host auditions for a new wife. And, of course, the one that he picks turns out to be not who he thought she was. And so the majority of the film is really dealing with his loneliness and it's really him dealing with getting to know this woman that he feels like he's falling in love with. Um, and then the rug just completely gets pulled out from underneath the audience. Um, and it, it is the definition of a slow burn. Takashi Miike actually said he wanted to bore the audience. Um, cause I don't want to give anything away for anybody that wants to see it, but the last 10 to 15 minutes of that movie are, unbelievably horrific um, and painful for so many different reasons, uh, obviously physically, um, considering what's being done to our main character, as well as um, emotionally. Because you just, you know, as despicable as this idea might be to host an audition for a new life, they set him up as a very warm and kind person. And you just, you know, you can just empathize how lonely he is. You know, he's, he's dealing with the loss of his wife, um, and so he's an extraordinarily lonely person. And so he finds this woman and actually genuinely starts to like her. And so when she finds out what this all stemmed from, you know, 
he, I guess you could say he gets what's coming to him. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very, it's the definition and epitome of a slow burn film. And the setup is, is, is really wonderful in getting to know him as well as this girl. And you start to see, and what's really wonderful about it is that it never gives you purely horrific moments leading up to this climax, but you just start to see little snippets where things feel like they're off. So the tension gets so tight um, that when we get to that, that moment at the end, that it all just, you know, this, you know, this tightrope just snaps on us. And like it's 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 fascinating that you say at the beginning because like I've seen audition a long time. I probably saw it in when I was too young to actually see it, uh, or too young to appreciate it. Because I think I saw it sometime in high school. What year did that come out? Audition was it two thousand three? It's uh, no, it was ninety nine. So ninety nine. So I probably saw it sometime when I was in high school when you know like I had heard of Takeshi Miike because of like he had a small role in Hostile. Hostile. And then he also, uh, you know, everyone knew was talking like in hushed tones about Ichi, Ichi the Killer. Yeah. You know, just how fucking any any movie where your credits rise out of jism, like people are gonna remember. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking is like cause I'd seen Tucky, uh, I'd seen Ichi the Killer, and I was like, oh, I bet this movie's gonna be just as crazy. And I was really like, what is that? Like, I was not expecting it. And it's a movie I've wanted to revisit, but like, it's interesting to me that you'd say that uh, Mike's point or like what he wanted to do was bore the audience because mm-hmm. like i've heard him talk about when he made audition and when he was making films around that time and he's very much what we think that horror films are for teenage girls mm-hmm. like he just he like when he comes to the states apparently he's like confused like why so many like nerds are so into him he's like why are you watching these These are not for you and i love that his his point is like okay these movies are for teenage girls let me bore them yeah, and I just love that. Like he's his, like a lot of Mike's career just kind of feels like it's a big middle finger to form. You seem to be quite fearless in in wishing to provoke the audience or, or make the audience endure what is going on along with the the people on screen. I kind of wanted to promote the cliche of horror. I think that human beings are far more frightening than any horror film. And I wanted to express that point. I was trying to make the story as real as possible. That way it becomes more frightening. How did it go down around the world? What kind of reaction did you find to that film? I noticed that the British people have a very unique way of viewing audition compared to other countries. They think that I am very nice and a good feminist. But everywhere else, they think that I am the enemy of women. So you think that um, those of us in London and and Britain, we are smarter than the rest of the world? (laughs) I guess you can say that. (laughs) A man makes like five movies a year, so he's always busy. Yeah, he has so many films. Um, and yeah, I've, I've followed him for quite some time since high school and I really love a lot of his work and each film is so unbelievably different from the last. I mean, he hasn't made a movie even remotely close to audition, which I think is great in that, you know, he's always doing, um, you know, as, you know, Ichi the killer, that's kind of his big one, but he's done some really, really great and so bizarre things like, uh, this movie visitor Q, which I would highly recommend. It's not a horror film and he does. I've really- heard of it. I haven't seen it yet though. Absolutely bonkers. Um, and then he did this other movie, Gozu, that I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been following his. I mean, you, you can't even really follow his work just because he's coming out with new material so much, and he just has such a gigantic filmography. And, 
And Mika is one of those guys that like he gets he he's credited as being a genre filmmaker, but it really mm-hmm. comes down to he's just a filmmaker. You know, mm-hmm. there's people who probably love Mika for his comedies because he does a lot of comedies. He's done family films. He's done musicals. He, the man has done everything. Like you could like a very specific style of of film and find enjoyment out of Mika's career, even if you don't like horror or genre or whatever you want to call it, because he does so much. It's yeah, it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. absolutely he's kind of like how Fulci was in italy everyone remembers Fulci for his genre work but Fulci did westerns he did comedies he did everything Fulci was just always working yeah yeah um i think there's definitely something to be said about um specifically um east asian films um, and i'm a huge fan of j-horror as well as films that come out of korea and i just think they're so masterfully created um and they just feel like the craftsmanship is is just kind of on another level from a lot of what American cinema has done. Um, you know, whether that be Takashi Miike, Chanwook Park, or uh, Kim Ji-woon, who I also love quite a bit. Um, just their films are, are just feel like there's, it's interesting because they feel like they've taken, they take so much time to make them and watching them and they're so masterfully created. But then you look up these directors and they're making, you know, like Takashi Miike, they're making five films a year. Um, and so I, it's just one of those things of like, how do they do it? Yeah. Um, next film on my list is an oldie but a goodie. Uh, <laughs> the Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton in 1955. Love it. The film, um, I guess simplistically, is about a a reverend or maybe some man posing to be a reverend. They've never quite specify because he seems he's he seems very religiously in the know he he definitely knows his yeah. his his he knows the bible very well mm-hmm. uh, but he's a serial killer as well and uh he he marries a a widow a, a, a who he makes believe that he's in love with her and uh he doesn't get along quite well with the children because they are refusing to tell him where their where their late father hid like a big satchel of money yep. so it becomes a thing one of those things where he's he needs to get rid of the mom so that way he can have ownership of the children so he can figure out where this money is and it just becomes like this this really strange expressionistic southern fairy tale like the southern gothic yeah. tale yeah. and rob robert mitchum is gives like one of the most frightening performances i had ever seen in an old movie at that point you know yeah. It's such a, a wonderful movie, and it's so beautifully photographed. Yes, um, um, it's black and white. Uh, the lighting, especially. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Is, it's, it's it feels very much like a German expressionist film. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, and really funny too. Like, oh a, yeah, it's a really funny movie. Everyone credits Citizen Kane as being one of the greatest films ever made, and I'm not discrediting it, but I feel like Night of the Hunter could give it a run for its money, for everything that it did for cinema as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, another great underrated movie of Robert Mitchum is Cape Fear. Yes. I actually, I like both versions of Cape Fear, and some it depends on my mood of the day to determine <laughs> which one I like more, because I like both of them for very different reasons, and in some ways very similar reasons, because it's a very faithful adaptation. But Robert Mitchum was just... I, he was an actor that I, I knew of growing up because of his sm- small but amusing role in Scrooge. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like it wasn't until I started just watching more of his work that I realized just how great this actor is. Um, yeah, he's, he's unbelievable. I, I truly he, love. Him. He wasn't afraid to shed his because. I guess, you know, he, he had quite a career playing like a tough or a heavy, but then in some ways he was like a leading man, pretty boy. And he wasn't afraid to play with that, play with his perception. You know, the yeah. fact that he played a, ser- a, 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 a religious zealot serial killer in 55 is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I always tell people like when you're going to go back and watch these movies, um, you have to watch them in context. Oh, Totally. Yeah. And know that this these kinds of movies didn't exist in the 50s and 60s. Um, so when there was something that was considered revolutionary for its time, you know, people watch it now and they're like, "This is stupid." Um, it's like those movies did not exist. Like, and you know, there's one movie when I get to my list, I kind of references exactly that. Is that like it was one of those films that created that idea of whatever it is. So many other movies had ripped off from it. Um, in this case, the serial killer infiltrating the family. You know, we've seen that a billion times before. But, you know, we're, we're looking back to the 50s where movies like this just simply were not made. Yeah, and then, like, it's crazy, too, because, you know, there weren't a lot of serial killer movies made. Yeah, there's some gangster films that had killing, but not, you know, like, this is completely different. This is a man who goes town to town, murders people, gets what he wants, and then leaves. And he's just kind of like... A shadow mm-hmm. and like he, they, they do a great job of showing the inner monster inside of people because as he near, near the end of the film if I, it's been a couple years since i've seen this movie so correct me if i'm wrong i believe um uh rip mitchum spoiler kills their mother mm-hmm. and he tries to get ownership of these kids and just like those chasing sequences like him coming to find them in the basement or when he follows right. them down the river it's like they do a great job of making him seem like a legitimate monster and like the yeah. way they light him and frame him. He just feels like, like Nosferatu or Frankenstein. And, you know, that's the, that's the difference. You know, that's the difference though, is that like, like, unlike these monsters like Frankenstein and um, Nosferatu, like he, they, they, he's just a handsome man. He was the guy mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. see on the street, you know, and, and that's kind of similar to what Psycho did. Mm-hmm. Um, someone that could commit such these atrocious crimes was the person that lived next door to you. Um, you know, Anthony Perkins is so incredibly handsome. You know, Robert Mitchum is so handsome. Like, and that was part of their, you know, their deceit was that they were charming to these people. So they could yeah. get on and it. And the fact that you would Robert Mitchum come to town and it's not surprising that he could just woo this woman who had just <laughs> met him into marrying him. And yeah. And, you know, and then, and I think, yeah, you know, I don't know if this is a stretch, but I think that's similar. Was kind of like extended upon with the first, not the sequels, but the first Halloween, which was this guy. What in originally how it was portrayed was just this guy who we just didn't know why. Like, what what was he so attracted to about Laurie Strode? The reason he follows her isn't because she's his sister; it's because she went to drop the key off at the house, and then he just follows her from there. And then when he's revealed at the end. He just looks like the, uh, with the exception of you know the swollen eye from the the hanger, he just looks like the guy next door. Yeah, and actually, you you bringing up Halloween is 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 perfect because one thing that Halloween does very well that also this film does very well is plays with the perception of of evil. I'm listening to a really fascinating podcast right now called Halloween Unmasked, 
and right. it, and it's it's kind of like an eight episode deep dive into the franchise of Halloween. And uh, this oh. film critic, she does new interviews with Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter and all these people that are tied into it. And uh, through talking with John Carpenter, she figures out that John's perception of what Halloween is is just the evil that can be in any in any society any situation any town and that all stems from john's time living in bowling green kentucky where there's just well it's not necessarily an evil place there's just evil people that live there and that's kind of what night of the hunter does really well is just shows that it's not trying to say the world is evil they're just evil people inside this world yeah absolutely Absolutely. and actually now i'm thinking like night of the hunter and halloween would be a pretty great double feature together that is a great idea we will have to set that up i agreed um (laughs) so yeah that's my number two so for my number two i picked it for a very specific reason which i'll get into but it's the vanishing um the 1980 this is a movie i still need to see oh okay so it's the 1988 version not the remake um, it's the Dutch version, um, ironically directed by the same, you know, the same director did both versions, um, but not the American one. Um, but it's about a young couple on vacation who stop at uh, a busy gas station and the woman is abducted. Mm-hmm. And after three years, um, the husband can't find her, never hears anything from her. She just disappeared. Um, but he begins to receive letters from the abductor. And we also start to find out who this guy is and kind of where he's coming from. And the thing that's so unbelievably terrifying about this film is for one, it's me is obviously how easy it is for someone you love to just disappear. Um, you know, it does take the idea of kidnapping and just show how, um, how easily it could happen. Um, the scene, the kidnapping scene, it takes place at this service station. It's busy. Tons of cars are around. It's in broad daylight, and she's just gone like that. Um, so it's really that fear that we all have in the back of our head when we go on vacation with our loved ones, um, with friends and family. When you go into an area, or not even an area you aren't necessarily familiar with, but just a new place, or even it could be your home, um, and that person just disappears, and there you never find out anything about why they're gone or where they had gone to. Um, and so that's kind of like one of my biggest fears is, you know, that idea of some, and, you know, just because going back to the last movie that you're just speaking about that there are evil, so many evil people. Um, and we just nine times out of 10, we're not going to know who those people are. Um, yeah. And, and I, so how, Oh, I was gonna say, this is actually a film I've been aware of for a long time and I've almost bought the criterion many times during their criterion sale, just cause I've been meaning to see it. And uh, actually, I first found out about it in a very, of a, a very strange place. Um, Eli Roth, actually, of all people, uh, I was listening to. He did a commentary on the first Hostel with him and Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. and they spent five minutes gushing about the Vanishing and Straw Dogs. Mm. So much so that like both films have been in my like I've seen Straw Dogs, but uh, both films have been, I've not been able to forget about them, even though I've not seen them. Yeah, I know he had said The Vanishing was um, a big influence on that film, um, and yet you can definitely see you can definitely see it in that movie. Um, and and the other really fascinating thing about The Vanishing is the person that we come to find out who is the killer, and we get to know this person 
he is so unbelievably banal and he has his own family and that's terrifying to me. He's not, you know, he's not, you know, Michael Myers or he's not um, one of these iconic characters. He's just, again, the guy next door that we all know. He has a family. Um, and I won't get into the, all the reasons behind everything, um, but that is also what is so terrifying about that film and, and just the lengths that this person will go to um, to try to discover what happened to his wife, um, which leads ultimately to the climax, which is also, and I do not want to give away, um, it is, it's terrifying. Um, and I guess, I guess you couldn't, a lot of people might not even classify it as necessarily a horror film, um, is much, is kind of, could be considered in the realm of like a mystery or a thriller. Um, but that's a whole other topic, um, in terms of categorizing and genre labeling. Uh, but it is, it is truly, um, a very realistic and um, definitely empathetic movie uh, that one could watch and 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 definitely see themselves or find themselves um, in in real life. And it's one of those situations that we can definitely see happening to us, but hoping and wishing that it never in a million years will, because it does feel incredibly realistic um, with her disappearance and just because we all do this, we all do that, we all. We all go on vacation. We all take trips. We all stop at gas stations. We all have that thought in the back of our head. Like, I hope this person <laughs> is there when I come out, come out from the bathroom. Um, or I hope that this person is here when I come home. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very unnerving. I think that's a good way to put it. For me. I'm really enthusiastic about this movie. I liked it a whole lot. And one of the things I liked was the fact that the director really shows you two of the major cards in his hand right away. Uh, before the movie is 20 minutes old, we know how she disappeared right. and we know who took her. And then the movie flashes forward uh, three years to the fact that this man becomes obsessed with knowing what happened to his wife. This breaks up a relationship that he has. It makes it impossible for him to have any peace of mind in his everyday world. He's got to know what happened. And that's when the movie really gets interesting because, of course, this killer can't tell him what happened. And that leads to the ending, which to me is truly horrifying. And I think this is a very good movie. Based on the what, because I, I, I know what The Vanishing is about. And it's like I said, it's a film I've been aware of for a while. Um, it's not, it's, this is not my next choice, but I guess it's a film I'll, I'm going to ask to see if you've seen. Have you heard of a movie called uh, The Big Bad Wolves? Yes, I have. Uh, Big Bad Wolves kind of reminds me of what I'd know about The Vanishing, and mm -hmm. uh, similar style where it's 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 a slower moving film to that gets um, all about you know the evilness of of common people and mm -hmm. how far three people will go for revenge. Yeah, it's it was a very very I was very fascinated when watching that movie. Just and one of the most fascinating things was taking such. Um, Kind of a deplorable subject matter and in, and incorporating humor into it yeah i thought i was i was like that is such a huge challenge um for a filmmaker to take on and a writer um to take on and the fact that they're kind of like tackling that you know head on like i definitely give them credit for that because and, it's and kind of like yeah. the vanishing like they show these different sides of these people that make you morally question how you feel about them. Yeah. You know, like they, they make you dislike the good guys. They make you kind of feel for the bad guys. And just at the end leaves you just very like gutted, not knowing what to do. Yeah. 
yeah, you can't really talk too much about giving it away. No, um, so it's a movie that if uh, like I want to, see, I'm going to add The Vanishing to my watch list of things to see very soon. But if people out there have not seen Big Bad Wolves, it's one I'd recommend seeing as well as seeing everything else we recommend on this list. Yeah. <laughs> All what right. Do you have next? I'm sorry. What? What do you have next? Uh, the next one on mine is a film called The Wailing. It's a newer film by Hong Jin Na. It's from t- uh, 2016. Um, it's, I'm, I don't remember the exact, let me check to see what country, it's Korean. Okay, I couldn't remember if it was North or South Korean, but it's a South Korean possession film. But that's also a, kind of a police procedural that delves into uh, mysterious deaths and illnesses in the area. And um, it's a film that's, really caught me off guard because um normally i'm not super into possession films but what makes this film differently is it's very much a korean possession film it's based in their culture in their lore don't go in expecting like a like a a christianity or catholicism based uh, uh possession film like we have here in the states this one is very based in their culture and so much so that you, it actually benefits you to do a little bit of research throughout the film, um, be, uh, based around their cult, based around their customs, how they, what their religions like, their exorcisms. Because there's actually a really goofy and amusing exorcism halfway through the film that's tied deeply into the Korean religion mm-hmm. that just seems so bonkers and over the top. Yeah, but. It adds for a great comedy beat, too, because even the people who are in the film aren't taking it seriously. And mm-hmm. there's also, like, this casual racism against, like, uh, this Chinese man that lives in town. And I had to look into that. It was like, why do they hate this Chinese guy? And it turns out it's a long-standing, like, kind of hatred between Koreans and Chinese that you won't know if you don't if you didn't look into it. So it's, it's a film that it's not going to be for everyone because it does take a lot of extra work to fully get into. Um <laughs> And for a lot of people, it's going to be kind of a slog because it is very long. It's a 156-minute running time. Wow. But it's on Netflix. At least it was. Um, and I just could not – I was glued to the screen because, um, like I said, it's part procedural. It's part true crime. It's got a very deliberate, interesting pace. But then once the supernatural horror elements start happening – it's amazing. I don't know. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm having a hard time describing this film because it's so many different genres all put together. Mm-hmm. Is it one you've seen before? I have not seen it. Um, I definitely I will add it to the list just based off of your description. Um, yeah, those are always really fun, though, too, because you just find yourself learning more about a culture that you had no idea about. Or like you're just saying, like, you're like, OK, why do they have such animosity towards this man? And then like having to look up like, oh, I did not know that existed. Um, I think yeah. that's the fun about watching movies from other countries and this um, came out around the same time as train to busan which train to busan got a lot of love from from people and while i like train to busan my hope my biggest issue with it is it just feels very americanized mm-hmm. while this film feels very korean interesting which, yeah, I did, when i the, when i watch a korean film i want it to feel that way yeah i did or, not see train to busan i mean i've I'm truthfully not a big fan of the zombie genre. Um, so, and yeah, it just felt like, you know, a lot of the movies we had seen or do get here in the States. And so out of the train, Basan in this film, I recommend more people see this and I'll be the first to admit 
a lot of people who I'm going to recommend to see this film are probably not going to like it. Mm -hmm. But I still feel that doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you hate a movie, as long as you get a good reaction. Yeah, actually, I had a, a little bit of an argument with a friend of mine last night about how when it comes down to seeing a movie, um, I guess I'd rather hate a film than feel nothing for a film. Oh, yeah. The worst thing you can say about a movie is, eh, you know, it's whatever. Yeah, because like um, I just saw we just saw Hellfest last night and it kind of, I really kind of hated it so much so that I was kind of ranting on my way out in the theater. <laughs> and then we got into a little argument about like how. Uh, well, you hated the film. Why could that be better than a film that like? Because there's be there's better made films than Hellfest that I couldn't tell you anything about. Like I think I even gave the example last night was Theory of Everything is technically a better made film than Rob Zombie's Thirty One, but I'd rather rewatch Rob Zombie's Thirty One because I felt nothing after watching Theory of Everything. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so. also a part of that can be you know attributed to the fact that you are a horror nut. Um, it's a fair point. I couldn't think. I couldn't think of another like benign, just boring horror film that I couldn't that that I thought nothing of. It's just for some reason theory of everything was the first movie that came to mind, and I felt like I was picking on it a little bit, but didn't mean to be. <laughs> Settle down. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, the wailing would be my would be what? Which one is this? Thir three? Yeah, that was three. Three. That's my third choice. Um. I am adding it to my list as we speak. I said, let, let, let me check. Uh, let me check to see if it's still on Netflix. I, I I love the Just Watch app because you can you can check to see if things are streaming practically anywhere, and it just saves me a lot of time having to switch between all my various um, streaming services that I use. Yeah, Netflix is still on. Uh, the Wailing is still on Netflix. And while we're on the, you know, quickly, uh, while we're on the subject of um, streaming services, I would highly recommend anyone who does not have the streaming uh, service Shutter to get it immediately because I think it's incredible. Um, it's four ninety nine a month or fifty dollars for the year. Um, it has beautifully curated sections where they bring in different filmmakers to pick their favorite films. Um, I really love the TV app that it has. So right when you open the app itself, it has different um, subgenres that are playing oh, yeah. throughout. And so then if you're like, this looks interesting, um, you hit the, the arrow up button, it'll show you what it's about, and then you can go into the app, add it to your queue. Um, they're constantly adding new stuff. Um, I really, really love it. And also I'd definitely recommend anybody to watch the show The Core that is on it. It's an original series. It's I love it too. And it's unbelievable. It's so incredibly well done. Um, the the host is fantastic. It has the the curating at the end of it, every episode, and they bring on some really really wonderful guests to talk about a slew of different subjects. Um, so I really hope they they do a, a season two, um, and because it's just such a wonderful show that you can only find um, on Shutter. So I would highly recommend anybody to get that or um, do the free trial, which you will then be hooked afterwards. And Shudder is not is not a, a sponsor of this episode. We, me and Drew oh. both just very much <laughs> love it. Yeah. Uh, and all the same things you mentioned, like uh, and they just do so many cool things like, you know, we got the return of Joe Bob Briggs this year because right. of Shudder. Uh, Shudder's horror selection is top notch. Everything from classics to contemporary things like the fact that there's a Mario Bava section on there yeah. where you can just power through a bunch of his movies and they have fun with the genre too where they'll be like this is mutated 
mm-hmm. giant bugs. And I was like, oh, yeah. there's more than like, oh, there's like five films on here. Yeah, uh, and it's dumb. Chance. This this is a little thing that I like. Um, one of my biggest issues with a lot of streaming services is they'll give you like a sentence that will describe the film. Mm-hmm. They have, have just beautifully written full like paragraph this. descriptions of everything so much mm-hmm. so that sometimes the app will have to cut them off because of how long they are yeah um there's been times that not necessarily, not necessarily have loved everything i've watched on shutter i'm not saying everything on there is a gold mine but i've had better luck than than most other apps like th- their descriptions are so well written it'll it'll bring you into watching a film you might not have normally watched yeah yeah and they do they have everything and i, I really love um, how they bring out a lot of exclusives um, for horror films that may have um, a lot of them that have played like the genre festivals um, and you know aren't going to be on the Netflixes or Amazons um, on the Primes um, and they get a lot of exclusives that they bring on specifically for for their site um, uh, which is great because then it shows that they're putting care and attention into these films that might not get the same attention elsewhere um, because of you know their you know, they might be a little bit more off key. They might not be the mainstream horror that we're so used to. Um, you know, I've watched quite a few of their exclusives that definitely you would never see in a theater or would never be, you know, popular by any American standards, but are just extremely well crafted. And um, they also they also have a curator's choice, which I like. Every month, they're they head. Sometimes they'll do guest curation, but their curator yes. will choose some. Will choose like. 20 movies that they recommend and just like some of the films that were just added I'm, i just opened my shutter app on my phone just to look like a girl walks home alone at night was just added uh late phases night of the lone wolf is just added and it's one of my it's probably my favorite werewolf movie of all time and it's a newer one they just added a bunch of hitchcock rear window psycho vertigo shadow of a doubt rope mm-hmm. they just add a bunch of hitchcock stuff for halloween and yeah, I guess it, it sounds like we're just singing its praises because we both we both believe exactly. in this app. They just added Halloween, Halloween four, and five. Yeah, like they added that. That's its own little storyline of Halloween. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I again cannot say enough nice things about it. Um, so get it if you don't have it. Um, so my third film on the list, I chose for a very specific reason because. Um, I know which I'll get into and it is actually um, it's the Blair Witch Project from 99 um, and Classic. it runs, runs a little bit shorter at 82 minutes um, and if you don't know the plot which a lot of people do it's about three filmmakers amateur filmmakers who vanish after traveling into the Maryland woods um, to film a documentary on the local Blair Witch legend and a year later their footage is found the reason I had picked this um, is for a number of reasons. I do love that it is only 82 minutes. I'm a big fan of shorter movies, but it also takes it also takes its time in in getting through those 82 minutes. And a lot of people who watch it nowadays do not like it. And I think it's really unfair because they're judging it in comparison to so many found footage movies that have been developed. And I'm not a huge fan of that genre. There are quite a few that I enjoy pretty thoroughly. Um, but it's not a genre that I follow. But I absolutely love this movie because, for my taste, I am a much, I'm a huge fan of less is more, and I am a big mm-hmm. fan of what you don't see is more terrifying than what you do see. And I, whenever whenever someone asks me about this film, I always sum it up by saying, if you have an active imagination, then this movie is going to be absolutely terrifying. 
Yeah. If you don't have an active imagination, then this movie is going to be very boring for you. Because <laughs> you, do not, you do not see anything. Um, it's all sound design. Um, it's all just you trying to watch for hoping to see something, and then you never do. Um, and one of the best lines I'd heard someone say was, when he's screaming, when he's like, God help me, and you can hear him deep in the woods when they're at the tent, so there's nothing they could have shown me that was scarier than what I was imagining in my head. And, and, and going in its defense too, is like, you know, it does have so many of the gimmicks that we see today, like the kids interviewing the people around town saying like, Oh, we know we've heard this about the local legend. Um, don't go into the woods. And then of course they go into the woods. Um, it's been done time and time again, but this movie did not exist. I mean, those kinds of movies did not exist when this came out. People thought, and that was also, this was the advent of the internet. The marketing for this film was so unbelievably well done because they didn't have any money. It was mm -hmm. shot for $60,000. And all their marketing was done over the internet. And the simple tagline was, three filmmakers disappeared into the woods film a documentary a year later their footage was found so they presented it as if this idea they presented the idea as if we are going to show you this real footage that was acquired from these students who disappeared so they didn't go on any talk shows they didn't do any interviews so when you went into it you went a lot of people went into it thinking that it was real and one of the like what they did of cannibal holocaust as well they just right. i think it's a little different though because there's a whole section of that movie that goes into like straight narrative that's fair but i mean like the fact that people just the the director didn't have the actors going out in public for right. a while afterwards. Right. Yeah. It is similar to that. Um, how Rogero uh, Diodato had, had to like present the actors to um, the police and show them like they're still alive. Uh, but yeah, obviously once you get to the end credits, you start to piece it together. And I think that was, it's funny to me because a lot of the people who ended up hating this movie, even when it came out were because of the fact that they were tricked. Um, and they were led to believe that it was real. And when they find out ultimately that it wasn't real, that they got really kind of pissed off about that, which I think is kind of hysterical. Um, but it really set up for what eventually became this found footage genre. And what's also really interesting to me um, in you know, reading about this movie was that the movie you know, grossed over $250 million, um, may have been more than that. But the funny thing was when they made the sequel, it was just a straight narrative. Whereas now, and what's been done in the past, when something's successful, you just continue to build off that. Like, look at how many paranormal activities we have. You would think that because the first one was so successful, they would have just tried to replicate that formula of the found footage genre and just keep steamrolling that. But they went straight into narrative, and they tried to go into like the backstory of like who the Blair Witch is, and it, and it totally tanked, and it did not do well at all. And you know that was kind of the death of what would have been ultimately that franchise up until a couple of years ago when um, they did do um, more of a proper sequel and that it was found footage um, and tying it into, you know, the main characters from the first one. Um, but, it, you know, it is special to me because it is a classic case of what you don't see is more horrifying than what you do see, as well as I just love watching those three characters interact. Um, when they start breaking down, um, it has some moments that feel so unbelievably authentic and real and the way that they deal with one another is, um, you know, of course they start tearing on each other, but it's also really funny. Like I, one of my favorite sequences in that whole movie is when they're trying to cross um, the tree and she gets her shoes wet. 
because as an audience member, she's starting to get on her nerves at this point. So the two gentlemen start laughing at her, but they're also laughing at the absurdity of the situation. And they're also laughing because they're so exhausted. They're so tired. You don't really have any choice left but to just laugh at the situation. Um, and it's moments like that, to me, that really do um, hold a special place in my heart. As, you know, as great as the terrifying sequences are and the sequences in the tent, um, it's the character interactions between the three of them as they're starting to lose themselves. Um, I, I really, really do love it. And I think have, it's, have you looked into at all about how the actual how the movie was made? Yeah, because um, th- that's part of the reason why I love this film so much is because you know they presented the film as being real, but it wasn't. It for a lot of in a lot of ways it was real. Because mm-hmm. uh, for those of you out there who don't know, when they're shooting this film, they didn't, just, you know, they didn't have a director and they didn't go out and do like, oh, this is what we're gonna do here. Right. You guys be met. like they, they, they sent their friends out with cameras mm-hmm. and just said, just shoot, interact with each other, just be these characters. And yes. then at the end of every day, they would get like little like vials. Each character, yeah. they'd have to find it and be like, oh you're mad at such and such because of this. And then the other person's file wouldn't say anything. They'd give them a completely different direction, so they had to act off of each other. Yeah. And then their fear was real because they like at night, the producers and the directors would go out there and fuck with them. <laughs> so that way their reactions were real. So these mm-hmm. people are getting pissed at each other because... You know, I'm say me and you are in the movie. I'm pissed off at you because that's what I'm supposed to do. You have no idea why. Your thing just says that you're supposed to be friendly to me, and then you have to react off of that. We're all getting it's it's in a lot of ways it's 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 like a psychology experiment. Yeah, they're really fucking with these people. Yeah, yeah, and and it's really a, unethical in some ways. Yeah, and there's a really great line in that too, um, and I think a lot of the humor stems from what they say is exactly what we feel like we would say in that situation is, is when she's talking to Mike the next day, who's the sound guy. And, um, she says to him, he's like, well, the fact that we're so goddamn deep in these woods and someone would come out here and mess with us, like they've got to have something wrong with us. And she goes, well, she goes, well, how do you know if it was people? And he goes, well, even if it was, I'm not going to mess with that either. <laughs> no, it's true. Every, all their reactions just feel very legitimate. Yeah, and there's an, another one of my favorite moments, um, and it takes place. I guess like to a lot of people, it might not be that funny, but to me, I thought it was hysterical. Considering like we're filmmakers too, is when they're recording at night and they're trying to capture something, and he has the sound gear, and like you can hear it, and it's like when the twigs are snapping. It's one of the first nights, and so they're really starting to freak out. And he's in the tent, and he has the headphones on. He goes, she goes, come, she's like, get out here. And he goes, I'm not getting out. And she goes, why not? He goes, because I don't hear anything. And she goes, there is no way you didn't hear that. And because it's just like, well, he has all the sound gear on. Like, so than anybody else, he heard it. (laughs) I forgot about that line. (laughs) Uh, I've got to rewatch that movie. It is a movie that I remember when I was a kid watching it and didn't think it was very scary. But then, like, I rediscovered it sometime in middle school and think, this movie is fucking frightening. But it's like, you have to put yourself in the right mind. You can't go in, like, this movie better scare me. Like, I've got a nice ability where I can turn my brain off and just watch something and Mm -hmm. enjoy it and take the ride where I'm not thinking critically the entire time. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's something just very glaringly terrible sometimes i can't help it but for the most part i can just turn off my brain and enjoy it and the boy witch project is like the perfect movie like if it's you know 
a stormy a stormy night like it's raining oh, outside and everything it's like oh this is the night you watch Blair Witch Project you don't put Blair Witch Project on at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon you need to set the scene yeah it's not a movie you can watch on your laptop or your phone no yeah, that is a movie you should watch um, on a bigger TV with a good sound system or if you have a smaller TV and a, v- and a v- VHS copy of it that's also a proper <laughs> way to watch it um also available on shutter right now did you just look to see if all your films were available all your pictures were available on shutter no i mean i have shutter of course but um actually even movies i've seen i i still have in my queue and charge because i want to rewatch them um but that is actually um no i have a couple of them on my list that are on shutter um and i did you know uh sift through shutter to, to see which ones were on so i could recommend i know, got a f- i got a feeling if either of our films ever made on shutter i think we'd both have a slight panic attack one can dream yeah that's always the hope like everyone else wants to get on netflix or hulu it's like if shutter yeah. were to pick me up i'd be pretty fucking stoked about that yeah i i met sam zimmerman who's the curator um when we were out at slam dance and um I think he was a little taken aback because I came up. I was like, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you, but I just want to say things you guys do at Shutter are like amazing. And he was very nice and very receptive um, and very gracious. Um, so that made me just love the app even more. Mm-hmm. And he's great on the core. Yes, also very funny. <laughs> All right, so my fourth pick is uh we talked you mentioned before about how you don't really love zombie films and i don't either every you know there's some that still mean a lot to me or every so often one will come around that i like but for the most part i don't seek them out but this was a special one for me uh the battery directed by jeremy gardner from 2012 also on shutter (laughs) and it's a film that i wanted to see so bad when it came out like before I even got a real release because eventually Scream Factory picked it up and they put a Blu-ray out and everything. But Jeremy Gardner was just selling it on his website for like five bucks. And it was right around when I met my wife, my now wife, Amanda, and she bought it for me. And like we had to like hook up the, the, the laptop to the TV with like some HDMI cables just so we could watch it. And I loved it so much that I moved, I took the laptop downstairs and plugged it into the TV, my mom's TV. And was like, we're going to watch this again. And you're going to watch <laughs> it now with me. Mm-hmm. Um, in short, it's, it's a zombie film, but it, ta- it does everything that I hate about zombie films. It pretty much chucked. It, it doesn't do. It's the, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, uh, anytime, like if you're ever watching, like making a zombie film, ask yourself, would they do this in any other zombie film? And if so, then don't do it. And that's what this film did. It's a movie that you rarely ever see a zombie. Uh, I don't think they even really even say the word zombie. And it's a word I've kind of always hated myself. Um, and it's just these two baseball players. Like, I think they're like minor league baseball players that are friends, but I don't get the impression that they were friends before all this happened. The only thing they have in common is the fact that they like playing baseball. And it's just them walking through these rural roads trying to figure out what the fuck to do next. Because there's no other people. They've got nowhere to go. They've got nothing to do. And it's just figuring shit out and arguing with each other. And it doesn't sound very compelling, but it is. <laughs> uh, have you seen it? Uh, it's in my queue. Um... It's got one of my favorite endings to a film ever. Like, without spoiling it, just at one point, a character gets trapped in a car. And it's, like, it's done so minimalist that it's, like, oh, I could have done this. Because they think they shot the entire film on, like, DSLRs just on a whim. Um, just, you know, 
just on, looks like they just shot it on weekends, like how we all got started. And at one point, the, near the end of the film, they they get trapped in a car, and the camera's just in the car with them. They they've got blankets covering all the windows so that way they don't get baked by the sun, and that way the zombies don't see them. And the entire film is just one static shot from inside this car that he can't leave because he's surrounded by zombies, and it's just fucking riveting. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I I was recommended by someone else to watch that too. So. And like, there's not really any, any true scares or like big horror setups. There's some intense moments, but it's just really a character piece between these two people that don't really like each other, but they're kind of forced to be best friends. Mm -hmm. Great. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I'm very excited to see it. And like that to me is, is, is dumb as it sounds. That's drama. Like when your only source of communication as a person, you don't really like, but you have kind of forced yourself to be friends with him and that you need to watch each other's back and you are relying on a person that you don't know how much you can trust, but you've got no one else. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And it's all like non-actors. The, the lead actor, Jeremy Gardner, he stars in it as well. And he's amazing. After his role in The Battery, he's done small bit parts in other movies. Um, let's see. What else? I know he's been in movies, like some pretty noteworthy films. Let's see what else he's been in. Um, the Mind's Eye, he was in Spring. He was in a movie called Like Me. So he's he's done, it's done stuff. And it's just all like pretty smaller roles. But... No, he's super compelling, and I can definitely see him becoming a huge, huge deal. Good. Good. Um, well, I'm very excited to, uh, you know, should move that to the top of the list. Check it out, because you're the second person who recommended that to me within the past couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, and, like, it's... Uh... It's, it's, some, it's really some beautiful cinematography, too. Like, um, they're not doing... They're not... They're just going for a really simple, like realist, realistic, minimalist approach. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just beautiful. I don't know. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm. There's not a whole lot you can spoil, but at the same time, like I just want people to experience this film. And it's one of those things. Like there was a period of time when it first came out, when before it was on Shutter, and like right before, before Scream Factory put it on Blu-ray, when you only could see it by paying for it off of their website, I would tell people, if you see this movie and don't like it, I will reimburse you personally. <laughs> That's how much I was into this film and want people to see it. I will say, though, if you pick up the Scream Factory Blu-ray, since it was in Walmart, they had to have a more, like, Walmart catchy title. Because if you look at the poster for the battery, it's just two dudes sitting in a field. It looks like it's hand-drawn. and the guys, they're hold One guy's holding a baseball. But, yeah... It's not a title. It's not a poster that would draw people in at Walmart. So they got a really poorly done zombie poster for Walmart. But Scream Factory is cool enough to have that on the outside. Uh, but their real poster reversible on the other side. Nice. That's so ignore their shitty Walmart poster and see the film. <laughs> yeah, I, I do love that that poster quite a bit actually. Um, of the two guys in the field, I, I, I've always been a sucker for like hand drawn poster. Me or, too. Like, poster. It was just feel like. They have special care and attention and time that was put into it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never a fan of just like the image of like a still with like text on it. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously it can be done very well, um, but I've just always been a sucker for my taste for yeah, the hand drawn or painted poster. I think it's so cool. Me too. Me too. And I feel like um, I think part of that comes from 
being horror fans because so many horror posters were done that way. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually one of the things for Back of the Staircase. I, I took a film still that was more obscure part of the movie and then um, had that painted into the poster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe I saw the posters. I think the poster's on your... Wait. Um, yeah, all... Is it on IMDb? I'm looking at your IMDb currently. And yeah, it looks like it's almost, almost looks like it's painted. It's got that yeah. really nice... I like yellow lettering. Not enough people use yellow lettering. And I think part of that comes from my love for horror films too. Because like Kubrick used <laughs> to use yellow lettering quite a bit as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely got a horror vibe to the poster. And that's you know the next one that we're doing, which is straight horror um i already have an idea for like the the poster that we're using like for that like used to promote the film and like pre-production is like a, a still of the the main character but it's painted instead um i just love stuff like that yeah i'm really hoping i can make it out to the opening night showcase to, to see your film we'll just mm-hmm. see how everything's going because um the the night before is actually my anniversary so we'll see if uh, i'm able to make it out but i really want to see your film Cool. Yeah, November first, uh, seven thirty at the Oriental, and we'll so. promote it again before the episode's over. Oh, perfect. Um, cool. So uh, the fourth film on my list, um, I picked The Haunting, the original from nineteen sixty three. It's a great film. Uh, it's just under two hours, so it's running at one hundred and twelve minutes. Um, very similar premise. It's about a scientist who's researching paranormal um, and the paranormal entities he believes exist and he invites two women to a haunted mansion where our main protagonist begins to uh lose her mind mm-hmm. and again um i put this back to back with the blair witch project because but also i thought it was nice because it's going way back to the 60s um and but is a classic case of what you don't see again is more terrifying what you do see and that we don't see any of the ghosts we don't see we only see very strange appearances like um, the doors bowing in on itself as yep. well as it's all sound design as well um, it's a really terrifying movie um, especially for something that was created in the 60s it was around the same time um, and people often get them confused with uh, House on Haunted Hill the Vincent Price movie but yeah. it is very very different whereas House on Haunted Hill is um, was approached much more gimmickly um, I love both movies but The Haunting is definitely the better film Right. I mean, they're just so different. House on Haunted Hill, again, you know, like I was saying, it was much more gimmicky. Um, he had, you know, setups, you know, and saying, like, you might experience a heart attack when watching this movie. Um, and it, it had a lot more gags, like the woman on the, you know, kind of like the skateboard that floats by. Um, and so it's it's a very, very different movie. So I don't want people to get confused with The Haunting, which has none of that stuff. Um, it's based on the book, The Haunting of Hill House. and Which I think... Um, it, the, Netflix is doing an original series version of this. Right, and that's not actually why I picked it at all. It, that was purely coincidence, because um, I've always really loved this movie for for as long as I can remember. Um, but yeah, I do. Uh, I did recall uh, reading that not too long ago, um, and so I'd be interested to see how that turns out. Um, but definitely, definitely pick up the original one. It's pretty easily accessible. Um, although it was made back in the sixties, it's a really, really wonderful movie. Um, and again, if you have a, a, a very vivid imagination, it's another movie that, you know, regardless of the fact that it was made back in the sixties, which oftentimes people don't consider movies back then to be very scary. Uh, if you let your imagination 
nation run wild, it can it can stir up some um, spooky stuff. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. I'm trying to prepare you. My name's Markway, Dr. Markway, a scientist interested in the supernatural, the unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor, Nell, who could look back into the past, and Theo, something of a witch who could see into the future. This is Luke, who didn't believe in anything until evil, patient and waiting, made him change his mind. I actually just looked it up. You can get The Haunting on Blu-ray on Amazon for $13.89. Perfect. Perfect. Um, we'll no, get it's, it. It's a film that I remember watching early on in, in film school when, because I, I came into film school being really into horror films. But mm -hmm. one thing the film school did really well for me, because I know I've, I've met people who have got very mixed opinions on whether or not film school helped them but what it did well for me was it opened up my tastes it got me more into slower cinema which is why this episode exists it got me more into art house cinema and all these other weird unique tastes that i have mm -hmm. and so the uh, the haunting came at me at, at just the right time where is you know beautiful black and white cinematography because this is the time period when i first started getting into, more into black and white films um the haunting is also very fascinating too because it simultaneously feels con it feels more contemporary than its time and also feels very throwback even for 1963 pardon me um yeah i don't know like i i still think some of the 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 dread that that film induces still really works today if you as you said earlier in this episode put yourself in that mindset yeah you need to be aware of what the what Anytime you watch a movie, you need to be aware of what the world is like at that time. Mm -hmm. Like, if you watch a Marx Brothers comedy now and aren't thinking about, like, what the comedy landscape was like at that time, you might not enjoy it as much as you thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the and same goes for horror. Like, you, you know, going back to Blair Witch Project, if you aren't aware of what horror was like, which was very different um, in 1999 than it is now, 20 years later, um, you know, I tell my students to watch it because, you know, they, they watch all those movies now. The, you know, the found footage that pop up on Netflix. Uh, you, know, you know what? So I actually did, I didn't realize you were a teacher. All the time I've known you, I've never realized you were a teacher. Oh, my God. Well, I am. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so, yeah, one of the perks is getting to talk to people about movies and, and tell them to go see stuff. And, you know, I, I told them that because I was like, I forgot how it got brought up, but and I told them to see that. And, and big thing i said i was like you guys have to watch this movie in context and know what it was like at the time you know that these kinds of movies did not exist and you did not have paranormal activity five um uh, the found footage genre just wasn't existent then um no. so there's something very new um and yet at the same time it also feels very fresh watching it now just in that you don't see anything you don't it's all sound design it's all your imagination which truthfully to me is never gets old and again i think that's dependent on the person if you don't have an active imagination that can be maybe boring for you so it just sounds like twigs snapping i imagine some very horrific things that might be taking place during those scenes but to others they might just be like oh it's 
a bunch of twigs breaking, whatever. Yeah. So, sound design is so important. Part of the reason why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is as great of a film as it is is because of sound design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Because that if you watch that film with like if you watch that film silently, it's a very tame movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, unless once you get to that dinner scene, those those shots of like the eyeball and stuff, those those are pretty. That's good nightmare fuel. Oh yes, but I mean, like leading up to that, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, oh, yeah, it's a pretty tame movie at certain points, but it's may it's elevated because of the sound design. Actually, I remember when I was in school, uh, I had a sound design class with Kelly Kirshner, mm-hmm. and we had to bring in an example of what we thought was amazing sound design. And I brought in a scene from Texas Chainsaw. It was very early on when the girl runs into the house and she trips into their living room and falls of all the feathers and just that we had like i brought in like that 30 second sequence yep and then uh uh i i said what part of the reason i love this film is because of the sound design and because of the sounds that you hear texas chainsaw massacre is a film that you can almost smell yep that is a very a very good description um it, someone also said that it, it's a movie you feel like you need to take a shower after. It's true. Because um, you can, and I don't I don't mean that in reference to like um, any gore, which there is very little, if not any of, um, but just you can feel how everyone's sweating and they're hot and you can feel the Texas heat and um, everyone always has that flop sweat on them. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those movies where you feel like you're really hot and you really need to take a shower afterwards. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, what do you have for number five, sir? My number five is, and actually, this movie has just gotten a little bit of a resurgence, which makes me happy. It's uh, Peter Medak's The Changeling. I started with his name because don't want to be confused to Clint Eastwood's The Changeling, but Peter no, Medak's yeah. Peter Medak's The Changeling from 1980. Um, in a lot of ways, it is a pretty traditional, and I use that somewhat ironically. Um, haunted house film really done in a very too. untraditional way. Yeah, it's really sad too. Oh, it's 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 heartbreaking. Yeah, the, it's, the, it's the film op- the film opens with a um, you know it it happens within the first couple minutes, so it's not really a spoiler. But George C. Scott's character he's a compo- he's a a yuppie New York composer. His family is killed in a traffic accident while vacationing, and that leads him into the rest of the film. Um, where he needs to finish doing some composing. He's completely on his own. He's heartbroken. It's only been maybe a year since his family died, and he has to get himself back to work in a large, empty house. And that's what kind of leads into um, his plight of the haunting of this house, uncovering it, and finding just the sinister stuff that's beneath. Mm -hmm. Hell, even the poster, like, I love that. It's so choking. Terrible. Yeah, it's 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 so it's so sad. Yeah, and it's and it's weird that a lot of the the scary sequences are built around like his own depression, like the sequence with the ball that comes down the stairs. Mm-hmm. It's like that's weird, but it's also super sad. <laughs> yeah, and what, kind of what we were talking about with a couple previous films. Why this film works is sound design. You don't see anything. Yeah, I think if you get any glimpse of a specter of any way, it's maybe some lights, but it's everything that's sound design. And then George, and then there's also some great moments near the it, half throughout the film where he's questioning, is he going insane? 
Yeah. Is that's what's happening is his depression taking over and he's going insane. And George C. Scott is an actor that I think is brilliant, but you have to, you kind of have to know him as an actor because he's, he can be very stern. He can be very wooden yeah. in his own weird way. He's very intense, but he's an actor who's got an amazing range that people don't expect. Yeah, like everyone thinks of him as just being the Patton guy, but he's so much more than that. Like even his performance in the movie Hardcore is amazing, and that's a really strange film for him to be in. And it's interesting you bring him up in just in regards to performance because I think the number one thing that's going to sell a horror movie on its believability and how much you can find yourself attached to it are the performances. And mm-hmm. I think all these movies we've mentioned, the performances are, are wonderful. Um, and I hate when people say, Oh, it's a horror movie, but, eh, or the acting was bad, but oh, whatever. It's a horror movie. It's like, no, that's no excuse. If no, you look at even the movies that have come out, you know, as, as many horror movies there have been in the past, you know, five years, the ones that really were the absolute top of the food chain were the ones that had the best performances. Like in the Babadook, the witch, mm-hmm. uh, performance in Get Out, uh, those performances are what really sold those movies, um, and they just make the the uh, the suspense and the terrifying nature of those movies that much more horrific because we believe it because they're performance. And I think that's similar with the Changeling. Um, that's similar with the Vanishing um, audition and the movies you mentioned. Um, is because those performances are just, you just buy into them so much. And if you can make us believe that that person um, is existing in that environment, you know we have to suspend that disbelief because it is a horror movie. And while these things might not be existing in our reality, those people are selling us on the idea that they exist in that reality, that whatever's taking place on screen. And I think that's ultimately, you know, going back to bring up George C. Scott, is because we know and feel for him and we see that is absolutely believable in that situation no exactly or like if you think about we're going back to our love for the core back when the specter vision guys were on that episode <laughs> and this is this is something i've always believed in it was nice to hear someone who's got some power in hollywood to agreeing with me that when it comes down to a good horror film it's just a good drama yeah. You need to have if you can if you have a good story that uh, you can strip away the horror elements and it still works, then yeah. you've got a really good horror film. Not to say every horror film needs to have a big dramatic story. You know, I love slasher films and most of them have pretty stupid stories and you know, but the really good ones are the ones that have a really good story. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um yeah, I really enjoyed that segment when they were breaking down. And I haven't seen Cooties, but and he was like, like the scene where they're talking, it's like talking about what they wish their lives had turned out to be um, and how the kids kind of like represent. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, exactly what he said. If you strip away all the horror elements, it's, it's just a well-told drama. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And like it, the, the Changeling is a movie that, like I said, it's um, because it was uh, released by HBO Home Video back in the day. It was near impossible to get for the longest time because mm-hmm. HBO was clenching onto their rights. The fact that anyone was able to release it is pretty impressive because, like, Cannonball mm-hmm. Run, you can't get a good release of because it's HBO, or The Hitcher, you can't get a good release of because if it because it's put put out by HBO. But Severin Films, 
uh, just did a really great Blu-ray release of the film, and I'm just happy to see people talking about it again because Peter Medak was such an amazing director, uh, and he's worked his way into television now, but he did some of my favorite episodes of Hannibal Okay. throughout the run of that show, and he – because – you know, the the showrunner behind Hannibal, you know, and he, he, he says this in a really non, he says this affectionately. He said, I've got very pretentious tastes and I want directors who are just as pretentious as I am where every shot, we live in a world now of screen grabs and we want every shot to be screen grab worthy. And he's like, I just bring directors in and just say, be as pretentious and out there and grandiose as you want to be. And Peter Medak is so brilliant as a director, even though he hasn't gotten to do it, like direct as many films as I wish. He's done quite a few, but after a certain point, his he just jumped to TV. But I think The Changeling is one of the best horror films that people really have not seen. Yeah, I would also I would also highly recommend it. It's it's very similar to The Haunting. Um, um, so yeah, it's great that we both had haunting stories um, or haunting choices for those two back. Mm-hmm. So what's your so, what's your number five? So for number five, I picked one of the most terrifying movies I've seen. Um, it's called The Tale of Two Sisters, and mm-hmm. South Korea, done by Kim Ji Won, or you know however you want to say it. Some people say it the other way, um, and it's just under two hours long, and it's about um, these two girls and two sisters who return home um, to their dad, who is married to this woman who is very cruel to them. And while they're in recovery and dealing with their stepmother, um, they start to deal with the supernatural and a ghost that likes to interfere with their attempted recovery. Um, it's a very, also very beautifully shot, um, unbelievably well composed, and methodically paced horror film. Um, Kim Ji Woon did some amazing movies like uh, his most famous recent movie is called I Saw the Devil, which is mm-hmm. a film. Um, maybe not necessarily a horror film. I consider it a horror film um, because it has some of the most unsettling images I've seen in the past couple of years in a movie. Um, but a Tale of Two Sisters, it's, it plays a lot like a fairy tale. Um, and we're stuck in this house the entire time. And so throughout the course of the two hours, we learn learn the ins and outs of this house and we start to learn the dynamic between the two sisters as well as their father and their stepmother. It's hard to say without giving too much away. It's a very complicated movie too. It's definitely a lot of people come out of it saying like, what in the world just happened? I have no idea what the movie was about. So it might take a couple of watches, um, especially, um, but it helps, you know, being that you have to keep the subtitles on. Uh, and the image and it's uh, one of the reasons I love um, East Asian horror films are because Whenever something grotesque or awful happens, it's you can't help but think that it's so beautiful too. Not yeah. just the shot and the composition, but the colors they use and the makeup and the sound design um, and the practical effects they use uh, are always they always just tie in to make it such. And again, with this movie too, it's very fairy tale like. Um, it, it's kind of kind of that Grimm's fairy tale, um, you know, essence to it. Uh, and so, I would highly recommend anybody who not only loves um, Asian horror cinema, but or Asian cinema in general, but just um, a great slow burn. Um, it's a really one of my favorite horror films. Um, I don't know if I mentioned, but yeah, it came out in two thousand three, I believe. Uh, not even I believe, but I know they tried to make they did a remake of it um, not too long after uh, 
which I have not seen. Um, but when I mention that plot line to people, they're like, oh, it's like, I think it's called The Uninvited. They're like, oh, isn't it like The Uninvited? I'm like, no, I think that's that's the remake of it. It's not. The original film is from... Let me from, look it up. Yeah, the original film is from... And I'm pretty sure that's what it's called. But the original is from South Korea. Yep, um, The Uninvited. Yep. Yeah. So highly recommend for anybody, especially if you love... Um, if you it, Really, yeah, if you do love like kind of like the Guillermo del Toro. Um, Which I do. <laughs> yeah. So if you like Pan's Labyrinth or you like Shape of Water um, or you like The Devil's Backbone, which I'm a huge fan of, you will definitely like A Tale of Two Sisters. This is a movie that I've, I, I've been wanting to see. And um, I've been, well, let me say, I've been wanting to see it, but I haven't been sold on seeing it until actually your description. Um, because no one has been able to d- describe the film in a way to me that has really excited me because you know you can and that's part of the reason i started the show you could be told about a film until you're blue in the face but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to grab you right like um like honestly i'll be the first to admit like um i don't know if i would have ever seen or i know i would have eventually seen it i uh, i was pushing off the exorcist for so long just because i was not big into possession films and i was like well i'll eventually get to it but Eventually, I had some friends of mine just describe it in such a way that's like, okay, now this is an episode I really have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm really excited to see A Tale of Two Sisters because you described it in a way that worked with me. And I'm kind of a sucker for, for horror fairy tales. So yeah. that's part of what gets me. And it has one of the coolest covers ever. Um, I don't know if you have it up. But well, it's the-, the two girls sitting on the couch. Yeah, I love that cover. Yeah, um, I like the symmetry so- of it. Also, coincidentally, on Shutter. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, you're you're really trying to get a get me a Shutter sponsorship. I can tell. I mean, if you could get one, that'd be incredible. Um, it would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it was just. Yeah, I think it's just a coincidence that. I mean, it's just wonderful because they're such a great app that they have a lot of great horror films. So, and just looking through that, um, I was like, oh yeah, Tale of Two Sisters. I got to put on there as well as the Blair Witch Project. Um, Sure, both on there. Um, so yeah, those are my five. Uh, but yeah, audition, the vanishing, Blair Witch Project, the haunting, and a tale of two sisters. Mine once again were uh, House of the Devil, The Night of the Hunter, The Wailing, The Battery, and The Changing. All of mine begin with the. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I definitely am going to add the Wailing and the Battery, uh, or not even add, but they are in my list. But. Um, you know, and, and that's one of the, the with the battery, the, one of the reasons I haven't gotten around to seeing it is that, you know, I, of course, love low budget, but like, just the I, the words low budget and zombie movie, like, together, yeah. I'm, like, yeah. I'm just like... And I completely get, like, if uh, part of the reason I got so sold on it was because of uh, a podcast I mentioned earlier, the Shockwaves, they had a previous incarnation called Killer POV, and they had the actor A.J. Bowen, who I discussed on House the, uh, House the Devil section, he was such a big fan of it. That okay. I was like, okay, well, everyone on this show that I like their tastes are saying it's great. Plus him, I just kind of re- went out and find it. Um, and one thing I'm also realizing as we're talking about these slow burn horror films, uh, a strange little trend with him that I, I personally love is for the a lot of these slow burn horror films have really long long winded titles, which I kind of love. Like a tale of two sisters, or uh, the film that you're going to mention for your um, your bonus pick, the House of the Devil, the Night of the Hunter. Like they just, they, you know, it's not just punchy one word titles for a lot of them, and I I kind of dig that. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I never really thought of it that way. Um, 
Oh yeah, the bonus one I did want to add just because um, it's in kind of support of um, very independent horror. It's this movie called Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl, um, and it's it's a very short running time. It's only seventy six minutes, but it is deliberately slow. Um, it's a very slow movie, um, and it's just and it's essentially about the relationship between these two girls, um, and it's about uh, this woman or is this girl who moves in with her aunt who's, who's kind of aging and, and getting a little bit older. And um, she meets this girl um, named Beth, and she kind of tests the limits of her moral grounds and kind of sends her down this psychologically unstable and, um, you know, kind of daunting path. And it really ultimately becomes about the relationship between the two of them, but it's very, very well done. Um, you know, a lot of people you know, will say they didn't like it because they say they claim nothing happens, but there's a lot going on in that movie. And it's really, it's a really special movie because, um, and I, and I hope people find it because it is so under the radar. Um, and it's not a movie that's going to be grabbing. It's, you know, it's even one of those movies, like if you try to cut a trailer out, you're probably not gonna be able to find too much because, um, it's, it's just in not even, not in, there's no setups to it. It's just all, following us down this path and i and i love move i really love horror movies that take place in small towns um mm-hmm. and i have never I, personally i'm not a city person myself and i i just love the woods so anytime a movie can take place in a small town it's very similar to uh, house of the devil um or the innkeepers which he often does um or sweet sweet lonely girl or the blair witch project taking place in seclusion which is often a horror trope woods or a small towns i just i'm a sucker for and i will happily hop on board yeah and actually i have a recommendation too that um i think i mentioned to you before is not one of my favorites but it's i i like to promote these these slow burn horror films when they come up uh it's one actually on netflix from 2016 i am the pretty thing that lives in the house uh by earlier great Director Osgood Perkins, aka Oz Perkins, who's actually the son of Anthony Perkins, which is kind of cool. I did not know that. Yeah, and it is uh, the simple conceit is there is a a woman named Willie who comes to live at this. Who's a she's a caretaker and she's going to take care of this aging horror writer who's got mm-hmm. dementia. She's living in this remote house, and it's just about. Um, her discovering where the the ideas from this writer came from and the 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 past of this house and uh like there's a there's there's, the film begins with a really great narration where it makes it feel very um literary because uh you've got a narration kind of guiding throughout the film and i have sometimes have a love hate with narration sometimes i really love it sometimes i think it's a little conceited but uh there's a quote near the beginning of the film that a person could never a house that have that has had someone died in it no one can truly own that house because you're just renting it from the ghosts that live there and it's all about the history of this house and the occupancy of it and who truly is there and it's mm-hmm. just it's a very meandering film yep. and it's a film that um unlike some of the other films that are on our list does not have a big giant payoff but it's there's a payoff if you are looking for it yeah, it's, it's it's very similar tonally to Sweet Sweet Lonely Girl. Um, and did you see the his other movie, The Black uh, Blackfoot's Daughter? No, um, I've been wanting to. It was really hard to find for a while. And actually, uh, it came out after I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House because of just 
how distribution works. So right. I've not seen it yet. Um, but, it's great. It's also very similar tonally to those other two movies. Um, I believe you said you had thought you made a connection between those two filmmakers. Yes. Uh, A.D. Calvo, who directed Sweet, Sweet Lonely Girl, I think I've, I've, I've not done any research yet to prove this, but I believe is friends with Oz Perkins because at the very beginning of I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, there is a a dedication. And that's another thing I love. I love in movie when movies kind of like bring in this book style to it where it says 4 ad yeah for giving me an old house mm -hmm. and um you know it's two movies made around the same time about creepy houses and yeah um i remember like and i love when when movie I, movies take a literary aspect to it so like dedicating a movie to someone i've always really liked or like when narration does work it kind of it's it's it can feel very literary, which I, which I like. And, um, I was listening to an interview one time of Quentin Tarantino and he said that, um, he said more screenwriters should read books because they said it'll open up a whole new way of telling stories that you can't get just from watching movies. And actually the t cover for sweet, sweet lonely girl looks like it, but looks, looks like a book cover. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we could be completely wrong about that connection, but it, it did seem very logical. Yeah. And and not many people are named AD. So, yeah, unless those are just initials of someone close to him, but who knows? Um, um, that's our best guess. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, you know, we'll never know. And the biggest thing I'm going to stress is these movies aren't for everyone. I think there's some gems on on here that that I feel like everyone could enjoy. I feel like everyone could enjoy the Changeling, or everyone could enjoy, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Blair Witch Project. But doesn't mean they necessarily will. Yeah. Um, these are like I just I, I I'm a big fan of movies that require some patience. Like I know uh, Darren Aronofsky's movie Mother caught a lot of flack, and it's a movie I actually really enjoyed. But once again, it's people thought it was boring or they were confused. Really, I mean, I think that movie's nonstop. Like I was exhausted at the end of it. <laughs> Yet I've met a lot of people who thought it was boring because nothing's happening until the very end. No, I, I love that movie, and yeah, I think it's just it, it's plowing through. I mean, again, yeah, like if you're looking at the allegories and if you're paying attention to that stuff, like you're constantly picking up on things, you're constantly trying to keep up with it. And um, those are also that's another fun genre that be something to talk about sometime is uh, genre uh, fast paced where you're just constantly keeping not necessarily in terms of action, but just in terms of content. And I think that's a movie. Um, I think the exact opposite of boring, where just there's so much going on that you're trying like you're constantly trying to stay on top of it. Well, uh, well, I think we definitely should have you on again sometime. Yeah, that was a hoot. Yeah, like I said, it's it's very much like the movies we're talking about. This was the fastest two hours that I've ever done. Like I, I uh, My runtime currently is two hours and five minutes, and it has not felt like we've been talking for that long. Yeah, that, that, I mean, yeah, I could talk all day about all these things. But uh, yeah, and I guess my final point is like, I guess... That I, I truly feel like filmmaking is the most subjective art form because, you know, you can listen to someone sing and, you know, I can't sing like that. Or you can watch someone play a guitar and know I can't play like that. Or you can watch someone do a painting um, and know that you can't be like that. But everybody thinks that they can make a good movie. Everybody knows what a good movie is or thinks they know what a good movie is and thinks I can do that. Um, and I think the slow burn is attributed to that because um, not only does it take patience to watch but to masterfully create something that forces you to take your time and settle into it, I think is a, is an extraordinary skill set. 
on behalf of those filmmakers. And um, I love them dearly for being able to do that. And um, I think it's 10 times harder to make a slow burn film like a lot of the ones we mentioned and to do it well than it is to make something um, action packed and fast paced and that's not stop. Yeah. So before we head out, I know you, you've got a new film coming out. We've talked about it very briefly throughout this episode. It's called Back at the Staircase. Could you tell a little bit of people, uh, could you tell the people listening a little bit about that film and when it's going to be playing? Yeah. So the film is about five very distinctive people who find themselves stuck together after their beloved relative falls down the stairs and cracks her head open and goes into a coma. And the film takes place over the course of one day in which these five characters um, and their past resentments and animosity that they have towards one another uh, slowly boils to the surface and they eventually psychologically devour one another. Um, so it, it, it walks that line of horror, but it, it does stay more in, in line with a psychological drama. Um, but there are a lot of horror elements from the score to the setting. Um, but again, you know, the most uh, absolute most important thing to me is dealing with the characters. Um, and, then, you know, that's also what we're doing with our, our next one, which is actually going to be a, a straight horror film um, and dealing with psychologically um, with the character and more of a psychological horror film. But this one, uh, yeah, it plays. Um, so we premiered in January at the Slam Dance Film Festival and then uh, did a couple festivals and then we're bringing it home um, to Milwaukee. So screen closing night, uh, Thursday, November 1st at 7.30 p.m., at the Oriental Theater. Um, so the in last... Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for those of you who in... are listening internationally. Yeah, in Milwaukee. And then uh, it will be out um, online through VOD and um, through our distribution um, sometime within the next year. And so it'll be available on wherever you can get movies. So are you telling me there might be a collector's edition Blu-ray out there I could pick up? Yeah, I will do many commentaries that people will be dying to hear. <laughs> I'll moderate one of those commentaries with you. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I believe there might be some hard copies, but... Um, well, you know me. I'm a collector. If, I, if Even if yeah. I need to pay a little extra, I'll do I'll it. I'd rather get a physical copy. But I, I can't imagine anyone's desiring to hear a commentary track by me. Um, may, maybe someday. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so it'll be out. Um, but as most people consume movies through Amazon and all that stuff like that, um, through our distributor and... Uh, yeah, so I'm very excited, and it's, it's been a really fun run um, to get people to watch this movie and to watch it with people and see how they react and um, getting some some really fun reactions. We got some really nice reception from it, some really nice write-ups that I'm, I'm very pleased with. And so I'm really excited to watch it again with the, with the audience in a couple weeks um, and, and see how it goes, really. And Because, uh, um, yeah, it is, it's also, again, like these movies, and that's why we kind of did this episode, is it's a slow-burn movie. Um, and it's also just dealing with, it's entirely dealing with these characters and not necessarily the setup or, or, or what you're expecting to happen, but more so how they interact with one another. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, um, I think, uh, I think it's going to knock some people's socks off or at least that's what I'm hoping and yeah. will, you know, only strengthen our love for these slow burn horror films. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I, when I finish the next one, which it will be straight horror, um, we'll have to do one of these and figure out another topic. Yep, I think I think the I think that's a good idea. Or you can even just have you on, and because um, the reason we did this episode is because of me moving soon. I just knew I didn't have a whole lot of time to watch a dedicated film. We can always bring you on back on and actually do a shameless episode proper as well. Yeah. 
yeah that'd be fun be yeah fun. so uh yeah, thanks I, thanks a lot for coming out drew um as always you can uh, we really appreciate the support of the Shameless Picture Show podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio. We're working on Spotify and a couple other um, areas. Uh, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions help us out tremendously. And you can find the show on Instagram at Shameless Picture Show, as well as Facebook. You can find me on Instagram, Michael underscore Vyers. You have any social media accounts you want to plug there, Drew? Yeah, you can find our film um, back at the staircase.com. Uh, you can find it on Instagram at back at the staircase, um, Facebook slash back at the staircase. Um, yeah, and you can see, you can watch the trailer, watch them. We have a bunch of clips up from the movie, um, as well as some behind the scenes stuff, which are a lot of fun. All the, you know, all the behind the scenes photos, interviews with some cast, uh, some write ups that we got, as well as. Um, screenings and stuff like that as well as um, information um, for the when for when the film will be coming out and we'll make sure to plug all of those links and everything in the show notes yeah so, okay. thanks a lot for listening guys um, we'll see you soon <laughs>